0: Last week, I ended our time together saying that I will fiercely protect you from false teachers. You see, because I love Jesus Christ and I love His gospel, because I love you, His church, brothers and sisters in Christ, I will passionately protect you from those who would seek to distort the gospel of Jesus, who would seek to distract detour or destroy you from the faith, from the truth. I am a pastor. I am one of 19 elders in this local church. And as we look at the responsibilities of elders in Acts 20, you can also go to 1 Peter 5 if you would like, we find a primary responsibility of elders is to shepherd the flock, You see, in Acts 20, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. He knew that arrest, imprisonment, and possibly martyrdom awaited him there. So he called for the elders of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus, just to the south of of Ephesus. He had planted the church in Ephesus, probably appointed these very elders, and he knew that he would likely never see them again. But that was okay for him. You see, for Paul, to die was gain. And so he said to them, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly or seriously of the gospel of the grace of God, no matter what the cost may be. They can arrest me. They can imprison me. They can even kill me. But I will faithfully discharge my duties to testify of the gospel of grace. Luther said it this way, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body, they may kill. His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Well, Paul went on to charge these elders of Ephesus saying, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Guard yourselves, watch out for yourselves and for the flock, that is the church, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That that term is used interchangeably in this text and others with, with elders. Elders are overseers and vice versa, to shepherd the church of God. This is a primary responsibility of elders and overseers to shepherd the church. But by the way, the the word shepherd is the one from which we get our word pastor. That's what a pastor is. He is a shepherd of the flock. So then what do shepherds do for the flock? What do they do for the sheep? I would summarize by saying that they lead the flock, they feed the flock and they protect the flock. They, they lead by overseeing and managing and holding accountable and directing and, and meeting needs. They feed the flock primarily by teaching the Word of God, and they protect the flock from predators, and they are many. <laughs> Just last Friday, the day before yesterday, I read that a farmer in Idaho – has had 54 lambs killed by bald eagles. So, so what did he do? Well, he's, he's a shepherd. He moved the flock closer to his barn to shelter them, hoping to deter the predators. That's what shepherds do, you see. Listen to what Paul went on to say to these Ephesian elders. I know that after my departure, savage wolves, eagles if you prefer, will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, pay attention, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul knew that after he left savage wolves, Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing, disguised, you see. They would come in among you, not sparing the flock, that is the sheep, the people of the church. They will speak perverse things, outside gospel truth that they, and frankly, that you have received. Why? They're seeking to draw away disciples after them. So be on the alert. Be watchful. Pay attention. Be on your guard. Remember what I have taught you night and day for three years. that was Ephesus. It's interesting. We remember the Apostle John spent the last decades of his life as a leader, an elder in the church at Ephesus. And from that church, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And all of those letters deal with this issue of false teachers, predators, Wolves in sheep's clothing, seeking to destroy the the gospel and the church, just as Paul had warned. We we found in 1 John that they had gone out. Interesting word. They had gone out. They had left the church. If they had truly been of the church, they would have remained, but by their going, they proved that while they had been physically present for a time, um, they were not actually of the church went out. They they left. The problem was they didn't just leave. Oh, we've had people among us deny the Christian faith, decide that they no longer believe, deconverted, and they have left. But that's not what these guys were doing. (laughs) locked that away. We're talking about false teachers. They left, and as wolves, they were seeking to destroy the faith of others. They were seeking to draw away disciples after them, just as Paul had warned. So John wrote, 1 John, to deal with them. They had denied that Jesus was the Christ, the the Son of God, come the flesh to die for our sins. They denied the necessity of obeying the commands of Christ. They denied the necessity of loving one another. So John wrote 1 John basically saying, don't listen to them. This is how you can know that you have eternal life, that you believe God rightly, that these heretics are not right, they're wrong, you know because you do believe in Jesus, you do seek to obey His commands, and you do love one another. And now he writes Second John. He writes to a specific local church, think, I don't know, Alliance, to instruct them regarding interacting with these false teachers. What, what do we do with them? So we Saul last week. He started by reminding them that we are people of truth and, and love. Not, not just truth, not just love. They run like parallel tracks. You see, our love is not anything goes, but it is grounded in truth. The truth about Jesus and His gospel. We, we are being loving, by the way, by sharing the gospel with lost people, sharing the truth with lost people. He he reminds us, having believed the truth, we should live out the truth by obeying His commands, especially this command to love one another. But what do we do about these false teachers, these ones who were seeking to infiltrate and destroy the church? Remember, they had left the church which means that they had been known by and loved by the church for a time, but now they were disseminating their false brand of religion. What should we do with them? Should we, what, should we welcome them? Should we have them into our home? Should we have them into the church? Should we listen to them? Maybe, maybe they're onto something that we need to know. What do we do about false teachers today? And there are a plethora of false teachers. What do we do? They're everywhere. Second John, verses seven, and to the end of the chapter, tell us what to do. I want to remind you that he's just told us to obey the commands of Christ, culminating in this command to love one another for verse seven, conjunction. Four many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching about Christ, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. These are, these are, I know these sound like harsh words. These are strong words of loving, shepherding, protection. what I want to do for you today because true love protects the ones loved It's, it's not that we open ourselves up to whoever would say to us whatever they want to say three commands three imperatives given in this letter. Of course, he reminded them uh, of the command that they'd had from the beginning to love one another, but technically it's not a command. It's just a reminder of the command. The three commands in this letter are as follows. The first one is found in verse 8. Watch yourselves. Be on the alert. Pay attention. The evil one is alive and well. He's like a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour, so be alert. The Second and third are related commands are related, found in verse ten. Do not receive him. That is, do not receive a false teacher. Don't even give him a greeting. S- sounds a little hard. We'll outline the text today around those commands. Watch yourselves in verses seven and nine. Don't receive, don't even greet false teachers, then we'll look very briefly, just just reading the last two verses of the book. Now remember, John had reminded them to walk in the truth by obeying the commands of Christ, to include the one that they had heard from the very beginning, namely to love one another. Why? Why? Why does he start with that? For, conjunction, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Here, the implication is these deceivers were not of them. They had gone out. They had left the church. They no longer believed the truth. They no longer lived the truth. Don't miss this. They were after them. And in order to withstand the attacks of the evil ones through these false teachers, we desperately need each other. Do you see that? Walk in the truth, love one another, for there are those who have gone out into the world who are after us. We will need each other to effectively withstand their attacks. You cannot, you should not try to do it alone. And who were these deceivers? He tells us they were those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. In First John, he told us a little bit more about them, especially regarding what we call Christology. They're teaching uh, about Jesus. Bear with me as we review a couple of verses. You know, chapter 2 Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. It's what he says in this text before us today. You do not have God if you do not have Jesus. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's the same phrase that he uses here. Many deceivers have gone out. It's the same word, not the same phrase, the same word he used in chapter 2. They have gone out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have no doubt remained. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Confess Jesus who he is and what he came to do is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Chapter 4. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son, his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Chapter um, 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, who is the one who overcomes the world, but the one, he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Incredibly important, chapter 5, verse 6, this is the one who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ, when we looked at that, he came Through his baptism, through water, and through, not to, but through his physical death on the cross. Chapter 5, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, that is the eternal life, and he who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. These things I've to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have the life, eternal life. It is clear throughout the gospel narratives and that John proclaims in this first letter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who came into flesh to die for the sins of people, to become in his flesh the propitiation for, uh, for sinners. Listen to me, if you, if you checked out, check back in for just a moment, okay, I'll let you go back to sleep in a minute. Any denial that Jesus is the Christ, any denial that Jesus is the Son of God, any denial that Jesus came in the flesh, any denial that Jesus and Jesus alone is the atonement for our sins, that is the deceiver and the antichrist. You can go back to sleep. We noted in our study of First John that John in these two letters is the only author in the New Testament to actually use the word Antichrist. Now, you've heard a lot about the Antichrist, and I, I do believe that there is an Antichrist to come, the big one, the, the man of lawlessness that, that Paul talks about who will come at the end of time, the one that the book of Revelation talks about that we'll talk about in a few years, uh, opposing God and, and, and all that is good. But John, interestingly, uses the term to speak of anyone and, frankly, everyone who denies any essential Christological truth. There are many deceivers who have gone out into the world. Who are the deceivers here? The ones who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh. That's just simply shorthand. Coming in the flesh to do what he was. Who was he? He was the Son of God. He came in the flesh to do what? It's shorthand. In the same way, they were denying, in some way they were denying the incarnation, denying that He was the Son of God who would come, and there are lots of way, lots of ways through the centuries that people have done damage to the person of Jesus through the years. Some have denied His essential deity, that, that Jesus was God in the flesh. In, in other words, uh, that He was uniquely the only begotten Son of God and God the Son they say he was just a man, a good man, a, a holy man, a good teacher, but he well, he wasn't God. There's so many variations uh, of this one, uh, this one idea that they are hard to list them all. Some, to include contemporaries of John, said Jesus was just a man upon whom the Spirit of Christ came at his baptism, but less him left him at his crucifixion, that was Serenthus. Others deny his deity by saying he has not always existed. That's Arius, by the way. There was a time that he was not. He came into being when he was born of Mary. Still others have said that he was not God, like the Father um, is God. He's just kind of sort of like God. He's not one in essence with the Father. Again, that's Arius and modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. Today, the current trend even among those who call themselves Christians, is to, not, to deny that Jesus was God in the flesh. And that is, when he came, he emptied himself of his deity. He lived only as a man to demonstrate what we could do if fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Please note this teaching denies the deity of Jesus Christ in his humanity. He was not God when he walked the earth. That is heretical. Still others have denied His essential humanity. That is, they have denied the incarnation, that Jesus took on flesh. This is more in times past. They have said that Jesus was a spirit, immaterial. Of course, John deals with that here. He says He came in the flesh. The deceiver is the one who denies that He came in the flesh. In First John, he started his letter by saying, listen, our eyes saw Him, our ears heard Him, our hands handled Him. He was flesh. Listen, He slept, He ate, He drank, He cried, and He died. He was flesh. Still, others have denied his substitutionary atonement. They say that he came and lived as a moral example. That's, 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 that means something a moral example to show us how to live. I want to say this gently, but very clearly. One of the famous evangelists of the 19th century, who's known as the father of revivalism. There's a guy by the name of Charles Finney. You've heard of him. And while today he is regarded as a good evangelist, I want you to know that he denied substitutionary atonement. He said, and I quote, no man can die for the sins of another. Christ did not, could not die for anybody's sins but his own. That is heresy and destroys the gospel. Today, the most usual way that people deny the necessity of the atonement, deny the atonement, even among so-called evangelicals, is to deny its necessity. What do I mean? About half of evangelicals surveyed today say that Jesus is not the only way to heaven, that other religions will get you there if only you will faithfully follow them. I want to say that that makes the death of Jesus totally unnecessary. If you can get to heaven without faith in Jesus, then Jesus died for nothing. I could go on and on. But to deny that Jesus was fully God and fully man, to deny his death and resurrection as the only means of salvation for his people, which is what Jesus said of himself, it's what Peter said of him, there was no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. To deny he, he, him as the only means of salvation for his people is to be the deceiver and the antichrist. I don't understand it. I don't understand how half of evangelicals in the church could say you can get there without Jesus. They don't know who Jesus was, and they don't know what he came to do. It's Interesting, John uses the definite article, the, at the end of verse 7, to deny the person and work of Jesus is to be empowered by the Antichrist, the deceiver himself. We call him the evil one. The devil himself. Which brings us to the first command, don't worry, I'm almost done, sort of. Watch yourselves. Brothers and sisters, watch yourselves. Don't give in to these false teachings. Is this a necessary teaching today? Again, survey after survey in American churches are showing that that Jesus' death was nice but unnecessary. He, he, he may have been God. He may not have been. His death may or may not have been necessary for salvation. This is the deceiver and antichrist. Listen, for over 30 years of ministry, I have been warning that the biggest challenge of, uh, to face the evangelical church is not the sexual revolution, LGBTQ and all that. Is not things like abortion, moral issues. That is not the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge facing the evangelical church in all of my years of ministry is pluralism. What is pluralism? Pick a religion. It'll get you there. If that is true then let's bring our missionaries home they're wasting their lives watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished but that you may receive a full reward what had John the other apostles accomplished the preaching of the gospel that alone saves souls to walk away from that gospel is to lose what was accomplished it doesn't mean that you lose your salvation it proves that you never had it do not walk away watch yourselves. Keep believing so that you may be fully rewarded. John is talking about eschatological reward, that is future reward, that that you will make it to heaven. You don't get there by your good works. Don't misunderstand me. You get there by faith in Jesus, who he alone is and what he alone came to do. We must persevere in the faith. Keep believing. Verse 9, he takes us back to these false teachers who had deserted. He's laying the groundwork for the second and third commands. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide or remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Do you you hear that? If you do not have Jesus, you do not have God. ones who do not hold on to the gospel somehow run ahead as if they've reached some level of greater spiritual understanding. They prove by their going on ahead that they do not have God. They never had God. The only way to have God is to have Jesus. We must cling to the truth of the gospel. There are historic biblical truths that must be held at all costs. Put a gun to my head and say, deny certain things, and I'll I'll say, let's talk about that. Put a gun to my head and say, deny the deity and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, and I will say, pull the trigger. This is of eternal consequence. Let me just take an aside to say, this so-called progressivism, we hear it on every news channel you read or watch, this wokeness has not just hit politics through socialism, sexuality through the LGBTQ, education through CRT and other things like that. It has hit the church of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know that. Many are suggesting in our progressiveness that we've got to go beyond the limitations of the church and the Christian faith. Our old notions of sin are archaic and bigoted and have to change. And John is saying there is a way to go too far. To go ahead and leave the teaching of Christ and lose any hope of forgiveness and salvation and heaven. They want to offer you some progressive truth. And John says, hold on to the truth. Listen to me carefully. Hold on to the truth of the gospel. I've said it this way before. We do not need the new and improved. We need the old and already proven. Teaching of Christ is either Christ's teaching or the teaching about Christ. depends on the structure of the word, but in the end, it doesn't matter. Christ's teaching is the teaching about Christ, bringing us to the second command almost done the false teaching is this false teaching is so serious with eternal consequences internal ramifications that John says do not receive do not even greet false teachers if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching that is this teaching about Christ and his gospel do not receive him into your home don't even give him a greeting i mentioned this Briefly last week, the Roman Empire allowed for travel with the Roman roads and the soldiers, the the Pax Romana, the the common language. It actually helped spread the gospel. Jesus came at the fullness of time, Galatians tell us. But then there were not hotels and inns as there are today. So itinerant traveling teachers and preachers depended on the hospitality of others. These teachers would often carry letters of recommendation. That will be important in Third John. As they came to a city, the local church would house them, feed them, care for them, even provide financial support to them. But now it appears that these false teachers were doing the exact same thing. What then should we do? Should we show them hospitality? We're told to show hospitality to one another, have them into our homes, whether our individual homes or the homes that house the church. Remember, this was before the time of church buildings. All churches were technically house churches. So do we welcome a false teacher into our homes, whether where we live or where we worship? John says unequivocally, no. That seems harsh. Do not even greet them. Why? Several reasons. First we, don't give, we do, first, we do not want to give them a platform for their false teaching. You do understand that there are so-called places of worship in town, like the United Church of Christ or the Unitarian Universalist, where you're allowed to go and share whatever it is you want to worship Jesus. We don't do that. We don't give a platform for false teaching. Second, we do not want to expose our people to false teachers. That's like letting wolves in among the sheep. Third, we do not want to provide any level of support for their false teaching, thus helping them along their way. Why would we do that? Fourth, we do not want to provide an endorsement of their false teaching. You see, giving them food and board, even greeting them, would, which was more official then, would be a tacit endorsement. Further, John says, by giving them a place, a platform, a hearing, and any financial support in any form, and an endorsement, intended or unintended, is to participate in their evil deeds. We, we become part and partner of their evil teaching. So give me just a couple minutes to apply this to our lives today. So, so, so how do we do this today? H- how? How? How do we become part and partner? How do we advance the, the, the cause of false teachers? Let me share a, a few ideas. By reading their books. By reading their books. For which they gain royalties. And by which you expose yourself to false teaching. I remember some years ago I bought Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. It is heretical. I knew it to be heretical. Heretical. I I thought I should educate myself, but I've often wondered in some way did I support, did I participate in his evil deeds? And they are evil. We participate by singing their songs. That's why we're careful about that around here, by which they receive royalties. We participate by listening to their podcasts or YouTube channels by which they gain numbers and unintended followers and thereby receive advertisers who pay them for time to advertise. Why would we do that? There is no reason to expose ourselves to false teachers. Stay completely away, John says. I suggested earlier that we have had those among us who have deconverted, who in left. They started with Somebody. Why would we do that? There are strong words in Scripture for those who would spread false teaching. We are talking about false teachers. We're not talking generally about lost people. Hear me. We're talking about false teaching. For example, it is said in Scripture, it would be better to tie a millstone around their necks and cast them into the depths of the deepest sea than to allow them to cause one of Christ's little ones to stumble. That's how serious this is. Here's the point false teaching is serious, and we should not allow it in any way into our churches or into our homes. I am issuing a warning because I love you. You say, I know what you're thinking, what about evangelism? Listen, there is a place for having lost people into our homes and our places of worship and and, and, and our, our churches. It's fine even to listen to them, to hear their objections and their thoughts. But we do not, listen, we do not give them a platform to share heretical beliefs. We're talking about false teachers. We speak gospel truth to them. We do not entertain their false teaching. Let me say it like this. There's a knock at the door and there they are two mormons and two or two jehovah's witnesses both of which deny the essential and exclusive deity of jesus christ and they want to come into your home and share their heresy with you i'm saying be very careful they are there to convert you i am suggesting that you not listen to them they deny christ and they are condemned but, but but you said, what about sharing truth with them? Yes, yes, listen to me. Yes, of course. I am issuing a warning. Be very careful. It seems a little harsh. I know. John seems a little harsher I know. Listen to John Stott and what he says about this text. If John's instruction still seems harsh, it is probably because his concern for the glory of the Son and the good of human souls is greater than ours and because the tolerance on which we pride ourselves is in reality an indifference to truth tolerance is held as the highest virtue in our society today, although tolerance has been redefined. It is no longer having an objection to some, something that you believe. That's what true tolerance is. Toler- tolerance is being redefined as to say, not only do I accept what you believe, I celebrate it, I affirm it, and I celebrate it. And if I do anything less than that, then I'm intolerant. That's not true. We've redefined the terms. And we hold it as the highest value. tolerance of which we pride ourselves and is in reality an indifference to truth the false teacher whom John forbids to the church to entertain is the deceiver and the antichrist you know what we're talking about the deceiver and the antichrist His teaching is derogatory to Christ and dangerous to the church. How then can we make him welcome in our home or church or wish him well on his journey? If we were to do so in the name of love, we would not be acting in the best interest of either of the false teacher or of those they would pervert. There is a place for evangelism. There is a place for sharing gospel truth. There is not a place for entertaining the teaching or providing a platform for false teachers. They are anti-Christ. Let me just read to you the last couple of verses as we close. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with uh, uh, I, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face-to-face. Some things are really, really hard, he's saying, and I would rather come in person and share literally mouth-to-mouth, face-to-face. It's, it's so much better to do that, to share with someone face-to-face so that our joy can be complete. That's why we gather. That's why we are the church. That's why we are together. That's why live stream and, 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 and um, uh, whatever it's called, uh, don't cut it. You know what I'm talking about, where we look on the screen at each other. What's that called? What is it? No, not FaceTime. You know, Zoom? Huh? Zoom. Zoom. That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) See, I don't even like it. Zoom doesn't cut it. I need you and you need me for our joy to be complete. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Brothers and sisters in this local church from which I write, greet you today. You understand what John's trying to do here? He wants to protect you. I want to protect you. I don't want to expose you to false teaching.